Hi, y'all. You're listening to In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. My guest back by the woodpile today is Orlando Luis Pardo Lazo, a writer and blogger who was born in Havana, Cuba, an advocate for his home country's liberation from the current oppressive Marxist regime. This kind of talk eventually got Orlando Luis in some trouble, as you can imagine. These days, he's an exile living and working in the United States but still has the same passion for a free democratic Cuba, working with such groups as Riders Without Borders and Victims of Communism. We'll hear many of Orlando's views on the current state of the island nation, in addition to some of his own personal life experiences. I want to start by asking about your life in Cuba. I really want to pinpoint on when you became what they call a dissident journalist. And I want to read a quote by you. So your quote is this. I wanted to isolate myself from that pair of collective hypnosis called the literary field in the national tradition. In Cuba, I didn't need to sail so much as to sink my way upstream. To think dangerously, to fight against the consensus of the correct, the same in aesthetics as in politics, to be a freak, to practice the word till it was made unknown and thereby recognizable, like someone who invents a new language and must imagine at the same time its first dictionary. So to people listening to this who may have zero idea about growing up, being born in Cuba when you were born. What do these sentences mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I miss the guy that wrote that. <laughs> Obviously, a lot of energy, a lot of desire to break free, to, you know, paddle against the canal or, you know, be always against not only the context, but even the consensus, no? I, I was uh, starting my life in, in Cuba. I was, you know, normal kid in a neighborhood in the outskirts of Havana. I was born in 1971. Very happy childhood. My family was very, very, very humble workers. And so I was the typical product of the revolution. I don't, I didn't fall from sky. So for me, Fidel Castro, Che Guevara, Camilo Cienfuegos was, was normal. It was Those were the founding fathers, right? And of course, my parents didn't agree with communism, but they were like many, most parents in Cuba, I would say, they don't want their kids in elementary school, secondary school to be in conflict immediately with the government or with the institution to be treated as pariah and at school. So in a way, our parents protect us from, from realizing you know, that we're living in a political tyranny in totalitarianism. No? But of course, when I get to the university, Havana University, even to high school, I start thinking uh, politically, I would say, nobody taught me. This was about talking with friends, reading books, sometimes books that were smuggled into Cuba, 
banned books, prohibited. <laughs> and so little by little, I, I started to love writing. It was like my realm of freedom, just like just as I liked American music, American music, listening to the FM stations from Florida that we could dial tune in there, in, uh, in dial in Cuba, uh, not dial like a synchronize in Cuba. So, and then eventually, little by little, you start feeling that it, there is something not normal in the way that Cuba society is, where the state controls everything. Everything is from TV station, mass media, press, schools, works, buses, public transportation, yes, health system, sports, everything, cartoons, everything, podcasts, or there were not pod podcasts at that time, right? And so eventually you start realizing that the only way to break free is being, you know, radically against uh normalcy or, the, or what it seems to be a normal situation in Cuba along the decades, but at the same time paying a high price. So as a writer, I was very aware, and I will summarize it here, uh, very aware from the beginning that I didn't want to become one more Cuban writer. I, I, if, I had, if I had nothing interesting to say, never mind. Still, I want to be like a very provocative performer, uh, a person intersecting the dots of Cuban society, thinking politically, even before thinking dangerously or provocatively in Cuba, thinking politically, it's enough in Cuba for an awakening. Because believe it or not, in a regime, totalitarian regime, where only the Communist Party is the only one legal, according to the Cuban constitution, at the same time, that hyper-politicization leads to a total apolitical life. We don't have senators in Cuba. We don't have representatives of the people in Cuba. Everything is a mockery, you know? The national parliament is a very personalistic, vertical, authoritarian uh, regime. And in a way, we are not used to political debates, political thinking, uh, dealing with political topics in literature, in art. And so only by that gesture, trying to create my own language, my own tongue, my own space of resistance, I was trying to bring metaphors about that. The writer as a very uncomfortable figure uh, that will destabilize the hyper-stable socialism uh, that in Cuba has been lasted now for six decades. And I think is a long time. Many generations have been damaged by that stability of Cuban society that we can talk later how sometimes foreigners praise how stable is Cuban society. Well, I was advocating a little to destabilize the Cuban intellectual field. I'm a peaceful citizen. I am not a member of an organization, uh, but uh, in intellectual terms, yes, I think we need a lot of deconstruction and a lot of uh, putting into crisis the coordinates of the Cuban cultural field. The narrative is that, you know, Cuba under the Castro regime is, I don't know, maybe post-history or maybe even post-politics. Like, you, you wouldn't need to think for yourself or rebel against anything because it's a worker's paradise, as they say. So what, what was wrong with you? It's complex, of course. We are talking of a very complex historical social phenomenon of the Cuban Revolution that completely changed 
the face of my nation and probably destroy the nation. I'm, I'm talking, I'm trying not to be, you know, biased. When I say destroy the nation, is that destroy the institution of the nations. We had a Congress, we had separation of powers, we had political corruption, we had dictatorships, we had democracy, we had the Constitution of 1940, one of the most uh, socially progressive constitution of the Americas. And so we had that in 1959 after a military revolt, a few months, and then a lot of urban terrorism, and this means bombs. Mm -hmm. exploding in the cities there was like an urban resistance and the ma in the mountains in the Sierra Maestra um, guerrilla of Fidel Castro that had less importance technically than all this uh, urban resistance very violent the police became very violent and criminal the, the, the state police under the Fulgencio Batista regime so in that situation of almost civil war many people just wanted one Peace. People wanted peace. So Fidel prevailed. People cheered Fidel because they wanted to get rid of Batista. And we were ready to rebuild the democratic uh, essence of Cuban society. And suddenly Fidel had a better idea. Democracy in Cuba was very bad. The Republican system in Cuba was nothing. The constitution, the democratic constitution that we had, that included all political parties, including the communists, it didn't work. So Fidel had like a messianic, uh, like a prophet vision. We had to align with the forces of communism because it was the only way to protect Cuba, sovereignty from US imperialism. Of course, immediately, uh, masses of people start migrating. So it was a very complex scenario. There was another civil war. There was military resistance against Fidel Castro until 1966 at least. So in the Cuban Revolution, Fidel decided we need to make a war here against the Cuban people and of course against US imperialism and against colonialism worldwide. So Fidel somehow had this historical vision for the country. We couldn't stop him. But we, we didn't ask him to do that for our country. We were a democracy. We were a republic. We had everything needed there. We just had to work for more social justice for the poor in Cuba, period. <laughs> Nothing more than that was asked from a public server servant. <laughs> well, Fidel became more than that. He became above the law, above the constitution, above the republic, above the nation, even above the revolution. In that context, I think that at some point in our when when we grow up, you no, know, when I was growing up in the eighties and nineties, it was like a feeling. I cannot really tell you that I was nothing nothing terrible happened to me until I started to blog, until I started to be an independent journalist. Then we can talk about that later. But it was like a feeling. Oppression in totalitarian societies, sometimes you don't see it. It's invisible. Oppression happens in the United States of America publicly in the streets but oppression in, in, in utopia in totalitarian societies is invisible it's called justice <laughs> oppression in totalitarian societies is called the justice system the judicial system and so it was something in my body i was feeling in my throat that i couldn't speak in my pencil in my hands that i couldn't write 
much like in an Orwellian situation, nothing happened to me. There was not a traumatic event that I decided enough. Probably I was even ignorant of many, many of the repressive events that had taken place in Cuba along the decades. I was ignorant of that in a way. And still, maybe this is a miracle of the spirit of providence, still me and a number of writers and you know thinkers, artists like me, we were feeling in our bodies, especially when we got into high school and the university, we need to break free. We need, something is missing in this society. We are lacking something that we couldn't define. Little by little, the word democracy sneaked in, uh, the word uh, plurality, uh, whatever. No, we were finding our own vocabulary. No? I call my vocabulary sometimes vocabulary. I make like a, that swap in the syllables, no? In, in uh, voc- vocabulary. Sometimes I say we needed a new vocabulary in order to understand a society because, much like in George Orwell's 1984 uh, novel, dystopic novel, we were speaking in neospeak. We were speaking and, and practicing double think. Well, we didn't have the tools to emancipate ourselves and nobody could emancipate us in Cuba. There were no longer social actors, leaders, inspire, inspirational figures. There was no civic rights movement in Cuba. There was no LGBT organized communities or minorities or anything. We were all revolutionary subjects. And my body, physically my body and my speech, which is also physical by the way, was feeling something is missing. Even when early in late in the 80s, we couldn't define it. It was expressed through music, through the admiration of American culture, for example, that we completely idealized. But then in the early 90s, communism had already collapsed. And we were very aware that the Cuban people deserve better. Nobody was talking at that time of you know, toppling the government or killing anybody. Not everybody was peaceful in Cuba and loving, but at the same time, we were ready very early in the 90s to move into a democratic society. And that opportunity was completely aborted there. No? And so, yes, I decided, even when I was studying in Havana University, even when I was going to the dentist or the doctors, when I was ill, yes, I went there. <laughs> what could I do? Even when I got a salary from the government, yes, 10 million people in Cuba get their salaries from the government. Yes, we don't have private enterprises. And so even when I was part of Cuban society or precisely because of that, I started becoming a very critical actor of my own reality of the Cuban government, but also of Cuban idiosyncrasy, no? idiosyncrasy of our own tradition. So I decided that a beautiful way ethical and aesthetical way of existing, positioning myself in the Cuban cultural field and in Cuban society was being a critical actor, somehow working for the promotion of changes that in my opinion are having long due in Cuba. Because we're not, again, and we are not talking about having McDonald's in Havana, which by the way will be excellent to have McDonald's in Havana, <laughs> but we were talking about a, a society that represents better the diversity and multiplicity of the Cuban people. We are not communists. Mm-hmm. There are many socialists in Cuba. There are many social democrats in Cuba. 
There are many leftists in Cuba. There are many people that don't have a political affiliation or somehow center-right, center-left. There are democristians in Cuba. There are ecologists in Cuba. And yes, of course, there is neoconservative in Cuba. Probably they are. But how, where in public field, in the public sphere, where are they expressed their interests? Where are those interests expressed? Nowhere. I will finish with this. The National Assembly of the People's Power, the Cuban Parliament, somehow the legislative body of Cuba. I will give this little data for your our readers, our, our audience. The National Assembly in Cuba has voted every single bill into a law unanimously. What a beauty. That's beautiful. I don't need to add anything else about the nature of Cuban society. Imagine a Congress where laws are approved unanimously, one after the other. So many foreigners are fascinated with that, uh -huh. certainly with that fascism. I don't mean to equivocate uh, my experience with yours, but I do remember growing up. You see this not just with the political left, but you could even say it with some uh, in religion or uh, other kind of uh, philosophies. Where on the surface they say, you know, we're very tolerant. You know, we we like to be open-minded. But when you get down to it, if you ever like questioned anything, you know, they would come down on you like like something was wrong with you, like you're defective, and at least in my case, I didn't know a whole lot of people that admitted that. And so I felt quite alone. I thought, well, maybe something is wrong with me. When you were in Cuba and you started to get your own mind, did you feel alone or defective? Or did you find other people like you that you could support each other or reassure each other that, no, we're not crazy. There, there's something wrong here. I, li I like that you use the word crazy. It was very important. And again, I will be quoting Orwell. <laughs> I don't know why, because I don't think uh, of Orwell often. Uh, um, Eric Blair, the English writer, George Orwell, right? You're right. And, uh, and I was remembering, as you talk about this book by uh, Revel, by um, Jean-Francois, Jean-Francois Revel, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly, Jean-Francois Revel, The Totalitarian Temptation. There are others. This is a book from the 70s, and there are others, no? Yeah, I agree with you. In democracies, in communities, in families, at school, yes. In different levels, we don't need to equate experiences yet, but yes, you face the same. I open my hand to you, my heart to you, my institution to you, and eventually, after this magical capture, the hard lines will be there, you are trapped, and you will, you will feel in your body that kind of oppression, that kind of, I cannot think creatively. You know? I felt moral, uh, it has been called the moral solitude. There is even a book published in Cuba by Dagoberto Valdez that is about that, you know, the moral isolation that you feel in Cuban society. You can find it on YouTube, very funny video by Bakla Havel. Czech mm. president, yes. former Czech president, that yes, he was taken once to a dentist, 
from from jail. He was taken to the dentist cabinet there. <laughs> he was baklahaval. He was wearing the prisoner's uh, uniform, and he said, "I was never more invisible than then." Doctors were doing their thing without blinking an eye or saying, "I think I know you." <laughs> he was very well known at that time during the. Pacific resistance, no? peaceful resistance again. So, yes, I felt invisible, invisible. I felt isolated. But I had I had something clear in my in my heart at that time. No? If I if I get resented, if I get like a angry, not to say full of hate or anything like that, then the totalitarian regime won the battle. I may get power <laughs> or topple the government, yes, but they won the battle. Mm -hmm. And Oswaldo Payá, the Cuban dissident leader, opposition leader that was killed by the Cuban government precisely on July 22nd, uh, 2012, so this is 10 years ago, he had that, that very clear, he insisted in that, you cannot let your language become vilified or, or full of angry anger you need to keep reason enlightenment love yes and love for your opponent or your enemy yes he, he believed in christian values um not everything is is worth when it comes to democratization violence for example is not is not worthwhile it, it will lead only to more violence so he was talking about this personal liberation i am free because I believe in the fundamental freedoms, in the values of the of the human individual, in the on unalienable rights, yes. And so, uh, just to finish this idea, the 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 fact that being isolated, I I was feeling. It, I mean, I would say the word bluntly, no. It was like a moral superiority. I was feeling I need to be better than them, and this will be a message not for me. I don't want any kind of protagonism or prestige or anything like that. I want to be better as a message to my neighbor, to my colleagues, that they can also be better, that they can be free and independent in the worst possible conditions. Or if we go to the concentration camps during Nazi Germany, there were many people there teaching music and arts and talking about philosophy to kids <laughs> when next day they were going to be exterminated in the gas chamber. So like you are not taking away from me my humanity, mm -hmm. my sense of being a good human being in the middle of the war, no? And that should be making a message for the future. We are better than the totalitarian. The totalitarian regime will not make, turn us into totalitarian subjects. This is about a miracle, eh? because mm. it's, it's not likely, statistically, it's not the, the thing that happens more. But I felt that I could find musicians, artists, street artists, uh, people in silence or people starting to speak, recovering their voices. And I am very proud that, you know, 10 years later, in, since I started blogging, or maybe 20 years later, since I started writing in Cuba, um, I see a, emerging more and more emerging Cuban civil society uh, that they may even ignore my name, but they are doing and taking to a to a to a new level what we were trying to do in that Cuba without internet and everything. So I feel hope. I feel hope that history 
is on our side and that Cuba needs to become a normal country. I think it's enough of totalitarian exceptionalism and utopian exceptionalism. And the American citizens should be aware of that. Mm-hmm. We deserve to be a, a modern nation. We are not, if, if, if we criticize American exceptionalism, please criti- do criticize also the Cuban or the utopian or the revolution exceptionalism in there. We're a normal people. We want to be normal citizens. We, we love life. We love liberty and we love happiness. We are humans. No, we are no less than that. Human beings that have been prevented or separated to be part of the what we what I call them the concert of democratic nations. And, and I know this is not the best moment for democracy in the world, but we keep hope. <laughs> we keep hope in that vision of a democratic Cuba. I got another one of your quotes I want you to explain. You say, if there is nothing new under the sun, as Ecclesiastes declares, at least everything should be new under socialism if we do not want silence to be our suicide. What did you mean by that? Well, you know, I'm always making like these short circuits with cultural references, right? So I, I, my books are much like this. They, they make connections, no? So basically, in, in this case, if I remember well, the idea is there is a lot of social, like personal, even exhaustion in Cuba. People are, people are tired. And I was trying to say, no, no, everything is changing every day. You think that the Cuban regime is an old regime? No, it's a new regime, and we're fighting it for the first time tomorrow morning. So trying to bring the illusion, the flame of something new, that newness, that feeling of otherness. No? And I've, I have been writing some in other parts that the Cuban youth is the oldest of the planet. I was a young stu- university student in Cuba. We never protested. We never claimed for anything. We never organized. We were very old people, but even old people claim for their rights and organize and do things. So we were not even that. We were civically, civilly, like in civil terms, we were dead. And so I was trying to bring, I have been trying to bring through writing passion, enthusiasm, and sometimes bringing this provocative sentence, no, like uh, under the sun, maybe, yes, it's always the same, a time to be born and live and love and then die. Everything is the same. No, no, no. I was at least under the song, the song of socialism, or, or because in Spanish, sol is like sol. Sol is the song. So playing a little with song, sol, socialism, whatever. So everything is new every day. The government should be held accountable every day, much like in democracy, where you question every single vote of the of Congress of the Supreme Court, every single presidential resolution. You question the establishment on a daily basis. So I was trying to bring that idea. Socialism is not a, like, a, it's not our fate, it's not our destiny, it's not our manifest destiny. We are not under this Marx, Marx nifest destiny or anything like that. We can change our society. It doesn't, we don't need to wait from changes to come from uh, the hierarchy of the government. We don't need to wait from, for changes to come from the U.S. Congress when they pass a, a law to restrict the travels to Cuba or to lift 
the Cuban financial embargo. We don't need to wait for Washington. That's their business there. Let's 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 think independently. Let's try to create what is called comunitas, like community, the sense of belonging that has been lost in my country, by the way. Let's try to feel that. Let's let's be real, uh, really able to socialize. One of my provocative definitions of socialism, socialism is socialism is a society where socialization is under suspicion. So in socialism, it's really difficult to socialize unless the state takes you to the street and then you parade by the millions in the revolution square. But as a student, as a community, as the neighbors, as a district, as a county, as a municipality, no, you don't socialize. You know better than that, okay? Stay home, stay home, you are a child. This is the paternalistic state that treats citizens as infantilized citizens. I was trying to break that. And so technically, with this I finished, I know that I tend to talk too much. <laughs> That's good. Uh, <laughs> is the notion that if we feel tired, one more time, the totalitarian, the repressors won the battle. And by the way, uh, in writing, I keep my optimism uh, outside writing late at night, talking to a friend. Sometimes pessimism comes. I am not a demagogue. <laughs> I am not blind. Sometimes I feel, my goodness, has the anthropological damage to my people. It, it, it's, is it going to be irreversible, that anthropological damage? Are we going to become a people that will never, never uh, really organize or mobilize to claim for our fundamental freedoms? Because is it maybe because it's easier, as I did at some point, and I and I am happy that I did, but I regret it at the same time because eventually we go to exile, we become free by. Uh, swimming or crossing the border or, or in, a, in a raft, risking our life instead of trying to bring that, you know, realm of opportunities in Cuba for Cuban citizens on the island. So sometimes I become pessimistic. In my writing, I try, in my writing, I try to keep a high energy that mobilizes myself and mobilizes my friends and my readers and somehow brings provocative ideas, mentioning the word socialism, the word socialization, thinking, as I just mentioned in the first quote, in, in a, trying to, to not to write following the accepted lines, but on purpose, trying to find shortcuts. Things that may not make sense, breaking the common sense, yes, also that. In a very uncommon situation, sometimes breaking the common sense, breaking the consensus. I'm, you know, like being the devil's advocate sometimes, sometimes being democracy's advocate. Uh, I think it could, it, it helps to the awakening, to, to break the inertia of these nightmares, technically a very uncivil, incivil nightmare uh, called utopia, socialism, revolution, totalitarianism, you name it. But in any case, it's a stagnated situation that I don't think any, any people in the world deserves. 
historically, I think there's this pattern that the political left, uh, when they're not in power, they are big advocates of free speech. And there's, especially in America, you've had incidences where you know they've really fought for people to express themselves when the powers that be didn't want them to. But when they take over, that all goes out the window and you know no more free speech. And in fact, uh, they consider speech against them as violence, they say, right? And so that justifies physical violence against people who would say things counter to their narrative or to criticize them or to point out the obvious. So in your case, you know, you were blogging, you were writing, and your so-called speech violence ended up earning you real violence from the regime. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. I mean, I don't know if uh, it would be nice to mention to the audience that we have a constitution, right? We have a Cuban socialist constitution. When you go there, there is freedom of speech in Cuba, period. As in the Cuban constitution, there is freedom of assembly, religious freedom. Everything is there in the in the in this in that piece of paper called the Cuban constitution. That, by the way, is very has like a 500 articles. So it's much more democratic than the American constitution, maybe. No, 500 articles to guarantee each and every imaginable right, even the right to water and things like that, no? to, to have a house, etc. So it's dead. Not a single uh, right there is guaranteed. But it, you see how language, there is this implicit and, and explicit violence. Maybe we can distinguish, no? The state sent us a message. You want freedom of speech? You got it. It's in article, in one of the articles of the Cuban constitution. And then of course, it is clearly stated that the law makes sense, right? The law establishes how can you uh, practice that freedom of speech, right? Because you know, we don't want to live in the jungle. Every American will understand that. We, we respect the law in America. So the law in Cuba <laughs> will be explaining to you that if you write a, cre- a sentence that is critical, respectfully critical of the president, or any other representative, maybe at some point, considering the idea of an impeachment of somebody, a judge maybe, maybe a president or a vice president or a senator or a representative, just an impeachment, no? It's a very simple word. Well, you are already a terrorist in Cuba. And by the way, a terrorist in alliance with the worst uh, reactionary forces of the world, probably with CIA, you are on the CIA pay list and things like that. So immediately the state paranoia manifests it- itself violently. This means people going to jail. Two years. Sometimes for doing nothing. It's called like pre-dangerousness. Uh, pre-dangerousness. Pre-peligrosidad. It's like the state of dangerousness. Like minority report. You are considered that you could commit a crime yeah. for the way that you think. And then you can get a very uh, generous, I mean, not generous, like a merciful sentence, maybe only six months in jail, because you could have written something. <laughs> and eventually, yes, you can get two, three, four years 
or more, like many social activists now and people that were demonstrating in the streets are now serving sentences of more than 10 years. So that violence that starts in language in the civil society, of course, we are accused of that. We are accused of being, especially a person like me that writes freely and sometimes makes exaggerated statements, uh, um, ambitions, scenarios, and things like that. Immediately, I made them make it easy for them to say, "Well, you see, this guy is also writing about this and that." No, but there is a difference between a writer, a fiction writer. I mean, I am a fiction writer. I write chronicles, but I also write my fiction. No, and the way that I speak in interviews, including this this podcast, right? And there is a difference in that freedom of speech, in that. Uh, playful, provocative uh, rupture of the consensus by whatever means in writing, in painting, in music. I think there is a huge difference between that and the linguistic violence that the Cuban regime exerts from article number five of the Cuban constitution that does not allow me to organize as a socialist in Cuba. It's very important to say this. I, Orlando Luis Pardo Lasso, cannot organize as a socialist in Cuba. I can only organize according to articles five and six of the constitution as a communist member of the communist party or member of the communist youth. What about Cuban socialists? Where are the rights, political and social and ideological rights of Cuban socialists? So we are fighting against the monster that has, one more time, has abolished the political spectrum. Yes, when we get to Miami, we seems to be far right and blah, blah, blah. We are misrepresented uh, by the media in America, etc. But in many ways, we don't know our political orientation. We come from a country where the political spectrum has been abolished. And so the violence never, never comes from political oppositors in Cuba, for political opponents or from the political dissidents, never. Even in July 11th, 2021, the people went by thousands, I would say tens, dozens of thousands to the streets. And in my perception, when somebody threw a stone, a legitimate stone, by the way, but when somebody did it, in my perception, was a self um, provocation by agents of the Cuban government. Even one police car that suffered some damage, nobody was hurt from the police officer or anything like that. I still think that police car was placed there to be sacrificed by the state security to say, you see, they are breaking police cars. Mm -hmm. The people were walking, chanting, clapping, smiling, and probably falling in love <laughs> with each other, very young people not politically involved so much like me. No? And so that beautiful uh, manifestation, demonstration of the Cuban people of civility, of desire to change, probably they didn't, even, they didn't even want the revolution to end, but they just wanted democratic change. They wanted to be heard and participate and change our country. That was met with the special troops in the street shooting people, there were several people that died, incarceration, and of course the paranoia 
calling for a war. The war has started, uh, said President Miguel Diaz-Canel on public television. A war has been declared against the revolution. No, my dear president, uh, my dear Cuban president Miguel Diaz-Canel, the revolution, um, it's time to acknowledge that, has been an undeclared war against the Cuban people and against the rights of the Cuban people that I repeat, each and every single of those rights is consecrated by the Cuban constitution, each of them. And still, we cannot move a finger, say a word, or assemble in any kind of organization or participate in the economic life of our country. That is very important. This is not an intellectual experiment. I want my enterprise in Cuba. I want profits in Cuba. It may sound terrible in America. I want profits for me and for my family. I can make my own money. I can generate wealth and pay taxes to the Cuban government. I can do that if you give me back my economical, my financial independence. It's very important for Americans to know the Cuban people cannot organize enterprises. The Cuban people cannot be entrepreneur. What we got there as cuenta propias is family licenses, not more than that. Domestic businesses that in America probably will not even be paying taxes. So it's also about recovering the economic uh, rights of the Cuban people, the in financial independence, the possibility of, of generating wealth in our own country. And from there also, the possibility of supporting certain political ideological views, certain artistic tendencies, and create a normal society where people can socialize and support each other. So it's very complex. And in a way, I will finish with this. Totalitarianism has been a simplification of society. And one more time, foreigners are fascinated by that sense of simplification. Where is America going? Nobody knows. Chaotic. What a chaos of a country. It has been called schizo, like schizophrenia. Schizocapitalism has been called by some philosophers that I like. Cuba, we know very well where we're going. We're building the socialist society where everybody will have this and that, blah, 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 blah. So foreigners, again, especially... Western intellectuals are fascinated by that big, big, big lie, big, big scam that is the utopian thinking, the, the feeling that the whole society knows the role of every single citizen in society, that we accept the power structure in Cuba and that we are all like, like bees, honeybees working on our own task to build a better future. No, we deserve to be a chaotic society. We deserve to be an open society. We deserve not to know where we're heading as a nation. So that is part of the breaking free that I am also, uh, you know, advocating in my writing. We deserve to have no horizons, no limits. Maybe Cuba will lead into the wars, but that will only mean that we are very bad people. I keep optimist. I think Cuba can be a model democracy that could teach a lot to the American democracy if we just could get rid of the totalitarian regime that oppresses us.
So you yourself was arrested at some point. Uh, can you tell us the specifics of that story? First of all, I would like to mention that in by comparison to many of my colleagues, my experience is nothing. It would be better to hear other stories, but it's, it's, this inter podcast is with Orlando Luis Pardolaza. <laughs> so I was arrested three times. No papers, no paperwork, no charges, no nothing. I just take you from the street in a car with no plate, no license plate. So I just take you from the street, no uniforms, no identification, no phone call. What a paradise. What a paradise. I was happy there, right? I was technically kidnapped, taken to a police station for the first time. Then I see the authority um, threatened. You're never, never leaving this place. This is your time. Your game is over. Now you will know you will know what is good. And in specifically in March 20, 2009, I was asked a personal question. I was asked in a five hour interview, interrogation, in fact, if I had brought condoms with me to the interrogation because I was going to need them. Why? This was said by an officer, Lieutenant Coronel, according to him, maybe he's not even that, maybe he's a captain, maybe he's a general, I don't know, Ariel Garcia. He identified himself as Ariel Garcia. And he asked me that. And well, the conversation went from that point, of course, very threatening with rape wow. in a police station by a member of the state security. Women especially suffered twice, thrice. Many of my colleagues, bloggers, journalists, when they get to the police station, they are forced to be naked so that they can search the whole body. See if they have a knife or a gun in a country where you cannot carry, you cannot own uh, weapons or anything like that. So trying to humiliate, specifically because of being woman. This is state misogyny. African-Cuban people, they suffer twice, thrice, because they are considered ungrateful. The revolution was the one that in a single day abolished racism in Cuba. You cannot speak of racism or race differences or even race integration or whatever terms you decide to talk about uh, discrimination in Cuba because of race. You cannot talk about that. There are no blacks or whites in Cuba. We are revolutionary subjects. And some African-Americans who have traveled to Cuba and written books about that experience have noticed that. There is no black race in Cuba. They cannot organize or they cannot uh, express their views or their culture. We are all Cubans, but in a way that we erase all differences. And eventually we get a very white government, <laughs> very, very white government with a very, very uh, white state security made by these kind of spies, special secret agents, etc. Well, when my colleagues, African Cuban colleagues, dissidents, very critical of the Cuban government, go to jail, they suffer twice because they are especially, they try to humiliate them by shaming them for being African Cuban and not being communist. So 
It's complex situation. It's a really, really, it, it, it's enraging. But here I am smiling. Here they are, many Q and dissidents smiling and saying, justice will be at some point, will come to my country. No, this situation cannot go on. I was never beaten, although in one of the arrests, they handcuffed me uh, with the handcuffs in the elbows. I didn't know how fragile the human being can be. I, maybe it was only 15 minutes. Maybe it was only 10. I don't know. The handcuffs were at the elbows level. And at some point, my hands and the tenses and everything, the muscles, they become, I, I couldn't feel my hands, period. And I was without recovering my, how can I, the motion of my of my fingers and everything for several weeks now mm. and then of course here and there they place this kind of um, martial arts techniques to immobilize you even when you are not resistant and in another in another arrest yes I, I received one of those I don't know techniques immobilization techniques and I may be I'd be still suffering the consequences. I have a problem with my cervical uh, vertebra that started that day. That was November 20, 2009, Friday, November 6, 2009. And after that, I kept dizzy several weeks. I still get dizzy, vertigo, and I have some problem with my cervical vertebra. I have been now in America going to chiropractors, blah, blah, blah. So and it happened in two minutes. I don't, they never beat me in my face. They never punched me in my stomach. They just touched me gently for one minute. I'm still paying the consequences. And so, yes, the human body in the hands of those experts, criminal, they suffers a lot of consequences. There are people that have been dying in prison. So my experience was basically that, staying in a police station 12 hours, one occasion, Stay in a police station behind bars in a little jail there, two days in another occasion, and another day during the visit of Pope uh, Benedict XVI. Um, I think it was March 2012. Well, staying in the police station until the Pope left the island. I was really, oh my goodness, I, I hope this holy mass it rains or something so that the Pope needs to go back to the Vatican because. They told me, as long as the Pope is in Cuba, you, Cuban dissidents, do not belong in the streets. And there were hundreds that during that um, week. So totally arbitrary, totally brutal in a way, totally abusive and totally with total impunity. But you see, you hear how I speak. Now, this is not the main thing. The main thing is the fundamental freedoms and all unalienable rights of the Cuban people are kidnapped, sequestered. If the Cuban regime starts behaving like angels from now on, they must go anyway. If the Cuban economy flourishes and Cuba becomes, as it was, as Cuba was called many decades ago with the 50s and 40s, the Switzerland of the Americas, the Cuban government must go if they do everything right and well and perfect, they must go. Every four years, every six years, I don't know, but a government that 
does everything correct must go out of power. They are only public servants. They should be appointed by us and we should be able to vote them in and vote them out. And again, does this sound familiar? <laughs> yes, it's the normal language of the left, the normal language of every democrat democratic movement, the, the normal language of the right, of the democratic right. So we want to become a democracy in order not to be, you know, like, not to be the servants of the government, but to be able to have a government that is the servant of the people, no more than that. And that doesn't seem to be possible in a socialist state only for the reason that the state monopolizes every single space of society, including the constitution. We don't have a constitution. We have a socialist constitution that is designed to perpetuate this state of lack of rights that paradoxically, and I finish here, a state of lack of rights that paradoxically are mentioned one after the other and after the other in the Cuban constitution. I know that your life is intersected with at least a couple people that we've had on the podcast before, including Rosa Maria Paya and uh, Ricardo Paujosa. Um, you have any thoughts or any anything good to say about them? Yes, of course. Ricardo Paujosa, two different generations. Mm -hmm. For those, who, I mean, I really recommend um, the audience to go and find and search for Rosa Maria Paya in your podcast and for Ricardo. Pau Yosa, P-A-U. And so Pau Yosa came as a child in the 60s, right? And so it's a very different generation, a man that should have forgotten about Cuba, period. Forget that. It's not your country. And he's one of the persons, Cubans, that I have met that love Cuba and love freedom for our country more than many people that live on the island. No? So it's unbelievable, no? his love, his understanding, his, his pain for the lost nation. No? Rosa Maria Paya is also in pain. She lost her father, Osvaldo Paya. He was killed July 22nd, 2012, by the state security in Cuba together with Harold Sepero. And then she should be hating violently hating communism. She should be communistophobic. That's not the speech of Rosa Maria Paya. Her speech is democratic changes will come to Cuba. Communism, yes, they will be eliminated. <laughs> they, they will vanish from the face of the earth when the Cuban people can speak up, when the P Cuban people can vote in democratic pluralistic, safe elections, supervised, probably the first elections in Cuba supervised by the international democratic organizations. No? Her speech is the future belongs to the people. The liberation starts in the hearts, in the minds of the people. That should be enough to eradicate 
the violators of human rights in Cuba. So I have met both of them. Uh, Ricardo Pagliosa invited me to his place. We have, I even translated, that would be the more personal anecdote. I translated some of the poems, moving poems of um, Ricardo Pagliosa, remembering his parents, the 50s, like the crumbling, our Pompeii, the, the telluric movement that destroyed everything in Cuba and his memories as a child of this. And now his understanding also of his parents, now like 40, 50 years later as older people now, or old people now, his understanding of the tragedy of a generation that is not his generation, but still he could feel the pain because the, you know, because the Cuban spirit is something that is passed no? in the stories, in the poems, in the arts. So Rosa Maria Paya, with a, she was born in 1989, so she was born with communism, was collapsing. Uh, it's unbelievable, no? All the work she has been doing, we were very close on the island. I met her the day her dad, Osvaldo Paya, was you know, killed, and then he was there in a, in a church during the funeral service and that little girl now that woman <laughs> that uh, great woman she was 23 years old and she spoke to a crowd of what 500 400 600 i don't know journalists repressors policemen the cardinal of cuba jaime ortega lamino was there and in the presence of the dead body of her dad Rosa Maria Paya spoke out of peace, love, Christian values, and a serious commitment to democratization of Cuba. Clearly said, what the responsibles will be held accountable through the legal system in a democratic Cuba. All political tendencies should be welcome as long as they are democratic and not violent and criminal as those who did this to my dad. There should be hope and not despair. So those words by that very, very young, skinny girl in a church, in the pain of having lost his dad, killed by an extrajudicial killing, it was impressive. No, and so we were collaborating. We were very close in personal terms. And then in exile, we have, we kept we kept together. She works for the NGO Cuba de Side. You can search for that. The the audience Cuba Decide.org. And she's still claiming for the possibility of a referendum in Cuba with international supervision. So supervision, international supervision. So that the world can know really <laughs> which are the desires of the Cuban people. Rosa Maria Paya always says, and this is my last line about her, that uh, we don't know what the Cuban people wants. Yeah, we, we think it's democracy, but when has the Cuban people been able to speak in freedom? When has the Cuban people been able to choose their representative in government or in arts or in culture? Never. So one more time, the depolitization of the Cuban regime. Fidel Castro, he was very courageous to send 100,000 men to Angola, Ethiopia, Mozambique, Nicaragua, Venezuela, 
what a courageous warrior, the greatest man of the third world, yeah? Very good. In Cuba, he was such a coward. I'm saying this without intention of being offensive. He was a coward because a person that is not courageous enough to polemize with a political, peaceful opponent, I, I could even use a stronger word than coward, no? He was never challenged only by some international journalists here and there in international forum forums in other countries. In Cuba, he was not courageous enough to sit down in public television. By the way, we don't have public television. It's a state television, communist television. Sit down for 15 minutes and do what, for example, General Augusto Pinochet did in Chile. Allow the political opposition to speak for 15 minutes like General Augusto Pinochet did in Chile, 1988, and then allow a plebiscite for the people of Chile in certain moment of the Chilean dictatorship for the people of Chile to choose their destiny. You know? Fidel Castro, yes, certainly was much more coward uh, than Augusto Pinochet and certainly left Cuba in the worst possible condition, probably in the destruction of the nation and uh, whatever crimes against humanity that Pinochet committed in Chile, he left Chile in a democratic situation that is still uh, get, getting only more and more democratic in Chile. I hope they don't ruin it now, no. But certainly the legacy of democratization between the tyrant of utopia and the criminal dictator are very different and, and it needs, I'm not trying to compare, but it needs some reflection about that, no? Uh, when Fidel Castro logic was après moi le deloche, after me, the flood, let the country destroy, let violence prevail, but that was never challenged in power, no? Other tyrants, other dictators, in, after committing crimes and unjustifiable violations of human rights, they have been able to open a door for restoring democracy in their countries. That's not the legacy of Fidel Castro. He will not be remembered by that. He will remember by the guy that preferred the destruction of the nation to be buried with him, a nation to his image. It has been said or observed that from suffering has come some of the greatest art, whether it be like the blues music or, uh, you know, thanks to communism, you know, we have great works of art by everyone from, you know, Solzhenitsyn to, uh, let me think, uh, Ronaldo Arenas and, Absolutely. Uh, and, and so many others. Uh, and of course, a, a bulk I would say what I know of your work, a lot of it deals with this suffering that has been caused on the island. Do you ever fantasize about maybe one day, you know, democracy comes to Cuba and you can write about something else? <laughs> yes, I wrote an essay 
for the American Society Review magazine in New York that said, is there going to be Cuban literature after the revolution? <laughs> and the answer was maybe no. <laughs> yes, there is a connection there. I mean, I, I, I keep I keep my smile always, no? Yeah. And yes, we can, we can envision that, you know, fighting against dictatorships, fighting against totalitarian regimes, it brings some, you know, aloe, some aura of vitality, courage, things that maybe I have lost already in, in living in democracy, right? So is it, it's possible, but I, I believe this is only because this is me, you know, my generation, my person, my, my limited human life. And so when democracy comes, new problems will come. No? I hope that people love the transformation of the country and they can really appreciate and not take for granted the fundamental rights that we, the people, have been able to get for ourselves. No? We don't want to be grateful to any single government in the world, including the American government. Mm. We are grateful to the American people that gave themselves such a great democratic system that we're, they are trying to perfect day after day, I hope, that they don't want to destroy it. No? And so it's a very delicate process uh, where the worst will be to have a democratic codillo, a democratic hero, a democratic emperor, a democratic king, like George Washington, he was offered to be king or no, 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 no. He didn't even want, he didn't even, uh, he didn't want to, to, to die in office. <laughs> he, he wanted to, to be very clear about that. No, it cannot be a military solution, a, a king, a, the, the supreme leader, no, no, no. So we are hoping that we get a limited government. It will be everything will be less epic maybe, but then that the society will be creating new conflicts that we cannot even imagine. New situations worth criticizing, of course, and questioning. And please, trying to think that those deconstructive narratives, provocative narratives in the future are not leading back into the totalitarian temptation because the idea that all the evils evils evil evils i don't know all the evils of capitalism and democracy and open societies will be solved when the state controls everything and imposes the realm of social justice on earth oh my god that's utopian thinking you're just walking into tyranny we don't even need to say from right or from left. You're just walking into tyranny. And by the way, the founding fathers were very aware from that and they had to fight that from the very beginning. And even from the very first presidents of the United States of America, they had to fight that. Law after law, trying to guarantee that Congress and, that, and, and even the representative of the people do not lead to a, a situation where you're living in a political tyranny. So I, I, as a person, I would like, I mean, I cannot conceive my literature without a fight for freedom. Mm -hmm. But I, I would love to see new generations of writers where democratization of Cuba is nothing important, is irrelevant because we already got it. But I hope also that they could appreciate or, or remember, no? Uh, how important is that to, to live a life in truth, a life that can be called human life. 
and Milan Kundera, the Czechoslovakian Czech novelist, Milan Kundera, still alive. <laughs> he said uh, in one of his books, not the title of the book, the, not, not, not the title, the, this fight between forgetting and remembering, no? the state will never forget when they want to punish, but at the same time, the state will forget and will rewrite history to their own convenience. So in that fight, we have the duty to remember now. It's not an imposition. It's, I don't want anybody to remember me, but I would like the Cuban people to remember that these 60 some years of communism, utopia, revolution, the human price has been too much, unaffordable, and we cannot afford as a nation uh, periods like this, no? like a half a century completely monopolized by a single voice, by a single style, by a single color, green olive fatigues, by a single uh, red banners of the Communist Party. Imagine America living under Kennedy today. Kennedy would be the most hated figure uh, in, in, in American public opinion if Kennedy would, would be alive and still ruling this country or Eisenhower. I don't know because we're talking about 1959. Countries need to renew themselves. New generations are welcome through democratic mechanisms to participate and shape the, shape the country and change it. It's what Americans do every single day. I hope that we could lead that process without hatred, without hating each other, without the division that hurts society. And with the understanding no, that beyond democracy, what lies is the realm of political tyranny, the ideological tyranny, economic, economic serfdom to the state. No. So um, I hope my next novel, and this is my final line, I hope my next novel is a novel of love between, I don't know, an exile and a Cuban and that there is not so much conflict and that nothing traumatic happens and that everybody smiles and then there are some secret playful events that take place. So a, a very maybe common narrative that doesn't need to deal with these uh, terrible events, because that will mean probably that we are already a democratic society. You know? As long as there is a political tyranny, I feel the ethical responsibility to write, think, make beautiful the, the process uh, that we are undergoing. No? There is the process of liberation. My, my, I feel the responsibility of making that beautiful that people fall in love with a narrative, with the urgency, with the risk of bringing to Cuba uh, what every human being should be having in the world. And I know it's not the situation, no? A state where nobody is discriminated because believing in an ideology or not believing in an ideology because believing in a government or not believing in a government or in a political party or not. So an open society has been discovered many, many centuries ago. And in a way, breaking free from the Cuban exceptionalism is bringing back normal, something normal to the Cuban society. President Barack Obama talked about normalization of relations with the Cuban regime. But he needs, I mean, that tendency needs to be a little aware that normalization with the Cuban regime cannot imply normalizing 
the Cuban regime. It's not normal. We want a normal society. The Cuban regime is an, an historical abnormality that we have suffered during the last 60 some years. Sentimos una desesperación, están matando todos mis hermanos, como no, voy a hacer la voz, las mambisas no están muertas, no, plantada, acompañada por Dios. You can find articles by Orlando Luis published on various online journals, in addition to some videos he's produced on YouTube. If you're still in a Cuban mood, you might check out those earlier mentioned interviews on In the Corner Back by the Woodpile 236. 189 and 209, respectively, with Rosa Maria Paya and Ricardo Pauchosa. And the music today was provided by fellow Cuban exiles Ignacio Cervantes and Karen Commonway. Be sure to check out their music on iTunes and YouTube and so on. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Podbean.com, Spotify, and Stitcher. If you would like to send us some love letters, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. We'll see you next week. Whoa. Bye-bye.